1: Or three, even if you've heard it before, it can be a great episode to learn from again. If you've already heard this episode or you're not interested in hearing it, feel free to just skip it. There's no harm in that. And you can pick up with our new episodes next week. All right, guys, that's all I had for you for this new intro. Everything going forward is going to be from the original show. Hope you guys enjoy it. This week, I chat with Brendan Earn about socially responsible investing, sometimes referred to as ESG investing, why these new portfolios are needed, how investors can align their portfolios with their values, and much more. Brendan Earn is the Director of Portfolio Management at Personal Capital and socially responsible investor himself. In 2018, he found a new calling and was inspired by a desire to leave a better world for his family. Brendan signed on to spearhead an ambitious new project, wherein he began crafting an investment strategy that could help drive positive change. Using a best-in-class approach, his team partnered with Sustainalytics to create an innovative and more socially responsible investment portfolio, one that identifies and rewards companies that minimize their carbon footprint, champion workplace diversity, and maintain ethical supply chains. The trend towards socially responsible investing seems to be very, very popular with millennials. So hope you guys enjoy this conversation. Let's dive right in.
2: You're listening to Millennial Investing by The Investor's Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation.
1: Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Leonard, and with me today, I have Brendan Earn. Welcome to the show, Brandon.
3: Great. Thanks for having me, Robert.
1: Tell us a bit about yourself, your background, and how you got to where you are today.
3: All right. Well, I'll try to sum it up as succinctly (laughs) as I can. I'm originally from the Pacific Northwest. I grew up in the east side of Seattle, actually. And then I moved down to the Bay Area in 2004, where I've been ever since and still am today. And ever since graduating school, I've been in the financial services industry. So I've held a few different roles throughout that time. And I would say, kind of, my transition within the industry has kind of spanned the two camps, so to speak. So, when I started, much of my time in kind of that first part of my career was spent in what's called active management. And that's really the side of the investment community that's managing portfolios on behalf of others, but it's doing so in an attempt to outperform the market. So you're looking for the next hot stock. You're looking for the category of the market that you think is going to do best and going to outperform. And while it was fine, while it was great, I think I did come to the realization that even the best active managers out there can't consistently outperform over time. So they may get it right for 10 years straight, but all it takes is one mistake to erase all that outperformance. And I saw the very real-life impact of that in the 2008 financial crisis and what that did to individual investors' retirement portfolios and just the retirement in general. So I made the realization that passive management was really the prudent way to go about this and to go forward on a forward-looking basis for the most investors. And that's really the process of just kind of buying a highly diversified portfolio that replicates the market as opposed to try to outperform the market. And there's just been a lot of research showing that the best way to build wealth over time with broad diversification and low cost will tend to do better than active management. That's why I made my way into Personal Capital, the company I work for today. And we're very much, that's part of our core investment philosophy. And here at the company, I am the director of portfolio management. And more specifically, in recent years, I've focused on social responsible investing.
1: As I was preparing for our call today, I saw that in, early in your career, you were a financial advisor, and then you transitioned into being an analyst. I have a couple of questions about being the advisor. When you were an advisor, were you picking individual stocks or was that more of like a traditional financial advisor role and you didn't get into the stock picking until you were an analyst?
3: As a financial advisor, you you were really investing in funds. So you were actually recommending individual mutual funds, not necessarily the individual stocks. That really comes into the play of professional management when I was working for a registered investment advisor. But yes, as an advisor, I learned very quickly that that industry has a lot of conflicts of interest, and there's a lot of selling involved. I really did not like that aspect of it. And so I very quickly decided, okay, I'm moving on in my career. I like more of the research. I like more of the analysis. I don't want to sell. So that's why I made the transition into an analyst role.
1: Was the advisor role, everything you just mentioned, were you not expecting that when you went into that role? And the reason I asked that is because when I was in school, or even before I really started college, I worked at a credit union and we worked with financial advisors. And I thought that's what I wanted to do. And then I learned more about everything that you just mentioned. And I quickly realized that being a financial advisor was not what I wanted to do. So I'm curious if it was a similar situation for you. I
3: knew that there was selling involved. There was no question about that. I guess what I didn't anticipate was the amount of pressure that there would be to sell specific investments as opposed to having full autonomy to kind of do what you want. And of course, you could do that. But I realized that it's very difficult to be aligned with a client at all when you're compensated for the type of product that you're selling them. So I had a short stint in that and then very quickly made that transition out. So probably a similar experience in that regard, but just had to test it out first.
1: Yeah, I did notice that it was relatively short. That's kind of what I figured. I didn't have a ton of detail when I did my research, but I saw that it was short. And then I saw what you transitioned to. So I was like, I bet this wasn't exactly what he expected it to be. Kind of like What happened for me. And thankfully, I never actually became a financial advisor. I learned before I did, but I went through that similar thought process.
3: Yeah. I mean, to me, it was a good experience because just to see what the other side of the industry, what goes on in that side of the industry, was, I think, fairly enlightening to know kind of what you can try to fix by doing it differently. And that's really guided a lot of the roles and positions that I've held since
1: then. Of course, today we have fiduciaries and we have financial advisors that. Are fee-only and things like that. So they're not as swayed by commissions, I guess you could say, as you might've been in your early days or as any financial advisor would have been back then. Has that changed how the need of financial advisors? Do you think individual people need financial advisors?
3: I do. There's a tremendous amount of people out there that need help, want help, and don't have the expertise or the time of day to manage their own portfolios. So. When you talk about a financial advisor, though, there's two different meanings to it. There's the one that works for a broker dealer, which is compensated based on the types of products they sell. And that's the one that you need to be careful with because they're inherently like worse people or their interests aren't aligned. There's just that conflict of interest, right? If they can make more money by selling a specific investment, you got to be aware of that, right? Because that specific investment may not be the best one for you. But there's financial advisors. Default, like you said, in the fiduciary camp. And they're a registered investment advisor is a prime example of that. And that's who I work for today, where it is fee only. We're not compensated for any products that we sell. And we do provide truly objective advice. And I think that's one of the kind of the great proliferations that I've seen within the financial services industry is kind of the rise of the RAA and that kind of conflict-free investment advice where you're not compensated on products. So I think there's a lot of good managers out there that are able to provide sound just good advice without that conflict of interest. So I do think there's a lot of help out there for people that aren't the ones that spend their time a day reading all about the investments that they're in and the kind of do-it-yourselfers, so to speak, that just want to do it all on their own. There's a lot of people that need help. And I'll be honest, I mean, money in general is one of the most emotional aspects of anyone's financial life. And so having someone there to talk to about that can be really beneficial for a lot of people.
1: I don't have these details, so I'm curious to learn from you. How has compensation changed for financial advisors as we've transitioned into a fee only and fiduciary role for financial advisors? Are those types of advisors making significantly less? And of course, I mean, this is going to vary wildly, but just generally speaking, as a fee only advisor and a fiduciary who's not making their living from these large commissions, are those types of advisors making significantly less than someone who? Did have those large commissions?
3: The answer is yes. I mean, you're as a company, you are making less because you're charging a flat fee relative to going out there and promoting all these products. Which often a lot of advisors used to have those flat fees as well, in addition to making commissions. And so there was just, I think that's also just one of the best things that's happened to the industry over time is it's really just been steered towards the investors' benefit, and we've seen costs fall pretty significantly over the last several decades. And so yes, for a financial advisor, it's more difficult. So you probably have to take on more clients in order to achieve that same kind of scale, so to speak, which is why obviously the use of technology can be beneficial to help you scale. But but yes, as a whole, obviously, uh, when you're out there making huge commissions by selling products, you're probably getting a lot more profitability.
1: Fast forwarding from that point in your career to 2018, you pivoted in your role at Personal Capital a bit to lead a new project that was being launched focused on socially responsible investing. What exactly is socially responsible investing? Why were these types of new portfolios needed?
3: So maybe I'll start with your second question first, why the portfolios were needed. So as a firm at personal capital, well, as a director of portfolio management, I had a line of sight into all of our incoming clients and all the different things that they wanted to do or customize within their portfolios. And you know, we have about, I think a third of our clients have some form of customization on their portfolio. And a lot of them came in with, well, I don't want to own tobacco or I don't want to own big oil. And they would have these specific things that they'd want to exclude from their portfolio, which we could, of course, we could do very easily. But I think what occurred to me was that there was this missing gap where that, yes, we can make those one-off customizations, but there's no holistic portfolio that can also address like companies that are doing better on certain sustainability metrics. And so that's where the idea came from, is to try to create a more holistic, unified approach that can tackle a few different issues. And then I'll jump now into the kind of what is social responsible investing. So I think it's a couple different things. There's been an evolution really where it started. And I mean, this is still widely used today, actually, is just an exclusionary investment or what's called negative screening. And that's what I just described of people wanting to exclude more controversial categories from their portfolio. So again, this is widely used across the world today. But I think where the industry has transitioned to is the next phase, which I'm not sure if you've heard of the term ESG, which stands for environmental, social and, and governance. And really this is kind of the three separate categories or pillars, so to speak, that are used to assess a company's social responsibility or its sustainability. So the environmental category might include categories like carbon intensity reduction programs or renewable energy projects, things like that. The social category might be employee diversity or health and safe working conditions for employees, whereas governance is more traditional things, board independence, executive compensation, things of that nature. But we now have a number of different firms that actually score companies based on these sustainability metrics. And so you can actually assess a company's ESG score and then proactively go out and find companies as a result that are better managing environmental, social, and governance issues. So that's called like positive screening or inclusionary filters. So you now have the ability to kind of do a combination of both. You can not only just exclude categories that you don't want to own in your portfolio, but you can go out and find companies that are better managing or proactively addressing environmental, social, and governance issues. So that's really where I think SRI has transitioned to today is the focus on ESG.
1: So would you say that SRI, which is socially responsible investing, is the same as ESG, or are they slightly different?
3: So within the industry, there are technical differences between the two. I try not to let clients or investors get too caught up in that because I think ultimately it all rolls up into the same end goal, which is a more sustainable portfolio that aligns with your values. right? And so technically, like the exclusionary screening that aligns with your values is more the socially responsible side of things. That's more value-based, whereas ESG might be a little bit more financial metric-based. But as a whole, I think the two go absolutely hand-in-hand. So I try not to even differentiate between the two when I'm talking to clients to me. They're one and the same.
1: What made you want to lead a project like this? Why did you resonate with socially responsible investing personally?
3: I mean, there's probably a number of factors that played a role here. I mentioned I grew up in the Seattle area. I, I think as a Pacific Northwesterner, I've always just kind of had an affinity for the outdoors. I just really enjoyed nature. I like to think I'm a passionate photography enthusiast as far as like nature and landscape photography. And so I just really enjoyed that aspect to it. So that's kind of geared me towards the environmental side of things. And so I've always kind of had that's been in front of my mind is just kind of being respectful to nature and the environment. And then at the same time. 2018 was right about the moment when my wife and I were having conversations about starting a family. And we talked about it and just well, there's all sorts of these risks out there. And you know, I just want to make sure that my family has the same opportunities to see a better world and to go to Yosemite and see it for all its majesty and not have the wildfires completely decimate all the natural wonders that I've been so fortunate to be able to see. And so that's another aspect to it and just being in the bay area and in california in general i mean i know climate change for a lot of people seems like this far off intangible thing i mean it's really not i mean in the san francisco bay area we have just been hit over and over and over again by these just devastating wildfires where the entire city and bay area is just covered in just shrouds of smoke and i know that's not entirely driven by climate change there are other factors involved as well but that's a big driver. And it's a very tangible thing. It was just front and center. And I saw the clients that were asking for these types of things in portfolios. So I just used it to kind of become my passion project. And just my sole focus was to try to help investors kind of invest in a more
0: sustainable manner moving forward. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors.
2: Hey, everyone. It's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. That's Airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Buy low,
0: sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise Flagship Fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise Flagship Fund before investing. This and other information can be found on the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. All right. Back to the show.
1: If an investor decides to invest in a way that is more focused on socially conscious companies, are they accepting lower returns than otherwise could be achieved? What does data show for socially responsible companies' returns versus the broader market?
3: That is a great question. And that is probably the single biggest hesitation you see anywhere for someone that's considering a socially responsible portfolio. The fear is that by investing this way, they are going to have to sacrifice returns relative to traditional fund investments, more just investing in general. And there's been a lot of research in recent years, kind of in the last like five to six years or so on this very topic. And I'll break it down in a couple different camps. There's the financial performance of companies that are kind of better managing sustainability metrics, so like their profitability, for example. And then you also have the stock performance of companies that, again, if you align your portfolio towards a more sustainable or ESG mandate, how they're going to perform. And so on the financial aspect of it, what we've seen is that these sustainability metrics, ESG issues, they've been proven to be financially material to a company's bottom line. What I mean by that is they actually impact profitability. So when you think about, let's just say, an industrial manufacturer who then focuses on reducing their carbon and water footprint, well, what does that do? That increases the resource utilization and lowers their cost of capital. That flows directly into earnings and higher profitability. And the same can be said for companies on the social and governance factors. Companies better able to retain top talent or treat their employees well are better able to retain top talent whereas greater levels of diversity, particularly at the board level, have been linked to greater levels of innovation and financial performance. And that's really the common theme that we've seen emerge from all this research on sustainability metrics is that those performing better managing ESG issues tend to be more profitable and produce stronger financial results. Now, does that translate into better stock performance? I think the pivotal piece of research on this that I like to point to was done by Deutsche Bank and the University of Hamburg, I think back in 2015. This was a meta-analysis where they aggregated over 2,000 studies on social responsible and ESG investing going back as far back as they could in time. And the primary conclusion, one of the primary conclusions of this was that you did not have to sacrifice performance by investing more responsibly relative to traditional fund investments. So that right there dispels the biggest myth around SRI or just ESG investing is that you have to sacrifice returns. Now, there's even a growing body of research in recent years. You might actually even get a performance benefit from investing this way. I mean, you've seen this from a few different or a number of different companies out there. There's one out of the Harvard Business School. I know MSCI and Sustainalytics have both produced research on this topic. So time will tell whether this holds true, but... If you know you don't have to sacrifice performance, I mean, in my mind, why invest any other way?
1: You just touched on exactly what my next question was going to be is, do you think, just personally, and this could be your own gut, do you think over the next five to 10 years, you mentioned how these companies are actually often more profitable, do you see that leading to better, actually better stock returns in the future?
3: Unclear whether I expect outperformance from this. I mean, to be honest, I'm kind of grounding my investment philosophy in that I'm expecting this to perform the same as it does to traditional fund investing. But if it does outperform, great. I mean, that's icing on the cake. But I do believe more and more companies are beginning to realize the financial benefit of better managing these types of issues and how that can actually impact their profitability. So I do think you're going to see more and more companies incorporating ESG mandates within their own ranks to try to kind of evaluate those metrics.
1: Do you think there's a, I guess you could call it misconception for investors that if a company is focused on these ESG measures, that they're actually going to be less profitable because I know for me, at least, when I first started looking into ESG, I figured that's going to come with increased cost, not actually increased profitability. So do you think there's a misconception with broad individual investors with that same idea? Yes. Yes.
3: I do believe there's a misconception. I think it's funny, within the industry, there are kind of two driving forces. So really the ESG, the the social responsible investing, it started in Europe, and that's where it gained the most traction. And that's where it's probably most widely used today. And it transitioned to the US primarily in the institutional world and the kind of ultra high net worth family office, so to speak space. And they were transitioning to it, and that's where it's growing like wildfires in the institutional world. Because specifically they're beginning to recognize the financial benefits that applying ESG actually can improve profitability, improve risk management, things of that nature. And what you're starting to see, I think, is this to trickle down into the retail space for individual investors, where slowly I think they're starting to realize, oh, wait, no, there's actually there could be benefits to investing this way. This isn't just like a feel-good movement. It's kind of like the weird. Have your cake and eat it too. Like you can align your portfolio with your values, invest towards a more sustainable future, but also potentially produce stronger financial results.
1: We talked a couple minutes ago about the very minute difference between ESG and SRI. Is there a difference in returns for ESG versus SRI? Even though they're pretty similar, but there is a slight difference you mentioned. So do you see different returns for those two types of investing? It's totally
3: dependent on the situation. I think within SRI, it can be a little bit dangerous if you take it too far. If you start excluding too many categories from your portfolio, then you start to sacrifice diversification. And in that sense, you could potentially have a performance detriment. Now, again, this could go the other way. And you could just isolate one segment of the market that just goes up and up and up. But I think that just presents higher risk the more you remove from the portfolio. So you have to still focus on diversification. I think the results are mixed to whether one or the other produces you know, better return. I think, again, the one study I continue to point to is that broad base that addressed both SRI and ESG going back in time and just found that, as a broad consensus, portfolios did not underperform conventional investments.
1: With nearly every person having a different definition of what socially responsible is, does that make it difficult to assign these general returns to these types of investing? Because let's just say you and I build two different portfolios that we each define as socially responsible. I'm going to have a different set of companies than you because maybe I don't think oil's bad, but I think tobacco is, and maybe you're the vice versa of that, just as an example. Everybody thinks about socially responsible different. So does that make it difficult to apply these broad return numbers to these strategies?
3: A little bit. I mean, I think ESG again is a little bit separated from that because that has more defined characteristics that have kind of grown more refined over time and those continue to improve and be standardized. They're not standardized yet. But yes, every investor's values are going to be different and that's one of the challenges with a socially responsible portfolio is how do you address all of that? So I think there's kind of a broad level of consensus on some of the more controversial categories. People will probably say tobacco, probably say maybe small arms, firearms, things like that, that maybe should be excluded from the portfolio, but other people might view it differently. And so this is where I think having a portfolio of individual stocks is actually beneficial for anyone investing in a social responsible or ESG portfolio because it gives you the ability to make those types of customizations. So for instance, think Walmart's not a good investment or you know, it goes against your values, you can exclude it from your portfolio. If you're investing in traditional fund investments, you can't do that. So again, I think having individual stocks allows a greater level of customization so that one can truly tweak something, a portfolio, to their values.
1: I want to dive a bit deeper into the diversification piece. A lot of the new ESG funds and ETFs make it easier than ever, to invest with your values in mind. But what I've seen with a lot of these funds is that they tend to be quite concentrated in one sector. How does this impact investors? What solutions are there to not be so concentrated yet still invest with your values in mind? Is it just having an individual stock picking portfolio, like you just mentioned?
3: That's one way. It's difficult when you're doing off the shelf funds because, yes, as you mentioned, they can often be heavily concentrated in a single area, things like tech or comm, that's very, very common. And to highlight kind of the potential impact of this, I would even take it back further in time before even the application of ESG was around to just kind of passive indexing, let's say in the year 1999 or in the year 2007. Let's say you were thinking you wanted a diversified portfolio, so you go out and you buy the S&P 500 index fund. Lo and behold, over a third of your money was going to be invested in the tech sector and we all know what happened there you know in the dot com bust that sector alone declined 80% in value so that had a significant impact on investors portfolios and the same thing happened in the financial crisis 2007 and 8 financials was by far the largest sector in the S&P 500 and it was over about a third of it, approximately and that also declined almost 80% in value in the subsequent downturn and so you have to be careful when you buy funds that have that kind of concentration so you want to own technology you want to own comm you want exposure to most areas of the market just not when it's a third of your portfolio so what i try to tell people when they're building a portfolio let's say with funds and they go out and they pick like a core esg fund for kind of their core us equity holding you know within their portfolio you can supplement you don't have to have every aspect of your portfolio socially responsible or ESG aligned, because the thing you don't want to do is just sacrifice the core principles of investing, which is diversification. I mean, that is the cornerstone of any successful portfolio over time. And so again, if you need to supplement by adding some sector-specific ETFs that are not ESG aligned or maybe small cap or whatever the case might be to kind of offset some of the concentrations that you have in your core fund holding, that's probably a a good route to take.
1: What do you see as the future of socially conscious investing or ESG investing? The
3: future, I think there's a few things. The first being, I think ESG is going to be widely accepted as no longer just social responsible. I think alluded to earlier, more and more companies are beginning to realize that ESG are financial material items. And this is just another prudent layer of financial analysis. So you might even see some companies out there that don't have a socially responsible offering that still apply an ESG filter. I think demand is going to grow significantly in ESG, primarily driven by millennials. I think, I don't know if you've ever heard of the great wealth transfer, but essentially this is over the next several decades, there've been estimates all over the place, but roughly 60 or more than $60 trillion in wealth is going to transition from the older generations and the baby boomers to millennials. So they're going to have all this capital that they want to invest. All the research has shown that millennials, just as a group, have a higher propensity to align their values with things like the companies they work for, the brands that they buy products from, as well as the investments that they select in their portfolio. So I think that's going to be a huge driving force for the industry going forward. And I also think there's just going to be more activism. You're going to start to see more specific companies excluded across portfolios across the country or included. That's just the standard exclusionary and inclusionary filters, but also proxy battles. I don't know if you saw the news recently, but something pretty unprecedented happened with Exxon about a week ago, where a very, very small activist investor with a very, very small fraction of ownership in Exxon successfully added new seats to the board specifically for the reason that Exxon is doing very little to prepare for a low-carbon economy in the future. Now, this is just unprecedented that anyone's been able to challenge a company like Exxon on such an issue, let alone such a small activist investor. But that just goes to show how much demand there is for this type of analysis and this type of change for companies to partake in. They got the likes of BlackRock and Vanguard and all the big institutional owners to get behind them and really drove a pivotal moment in Exxon's history. So I think we're going to see more and more of that kind of proxy fight as we move forward.
1: When behavioral finance came around, it was this new segment of finance, this new segment of investing. And I don't want to say we're completely there, but we're almost to a point where there really isn't behavioral finance anymore. It's just finance because we know that behavior is intertwined into finance and there shouldn't be a separate category. It's just finance. And I had a guest, Daniel Crosby, on the show. He's a leading PhD behavioral scientist. He explained that concept to me, and it totally made sense. Do you think we're going to see that same kind of phenomenon with socially conscious investing? Do you think maybe SRI and ESG just, I don't want to say go away, but just more or less kind of fade And because it's just finance. we just All these companies are going to fit into this category in the next, say, 10 years, and now it's just finance. It's just investing.
3: I absolutely believe that over time, that that will happen. I think you're already starting to see that take place in Europe, where it's new laws and regulations are being put in place, addressing these types of things. We're starting to see it, the SEC in our country, start placing additional focus on it. I think it's just growing to a point where there's so much momentum behind it that I think it's unstoppable at this point. But I do think to your point, yes, this is just prudent financial analysis. You have to take these factors into account for companies, they have to take sustainability seriously, simply for the sustainability of their own future. Now that they know that it can improve their competitive edge, of course, they have to address this. And so, yes, I believe this is going to be mainstream and just accept it as part of traditional investing in the future. Let's take a quick break and hear
0: from today's sponsors.
2: Hey, everyone. It's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. That's Airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example,
0: high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. This is a paid advertisement.
2: Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet and redefines sporting luxury. with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. When you started
1: at Personal Capital back in 2011, it was just a small startup in a crammed, tiny San Francisco office fast forward 10 years to today and personal capital is much, much bigger. And you've survived all of those growing pains by leveraging technology to be a great problem solver. Talk to us a bit about how you've used technology in your career over the last decade.
0: Yeah,
3: it's a great question in a lot of places, to be honest. I mean, in the startup world, everything is about scale, right? And so we're looking for whatever opportunity we can To scale an operation. I mean, I think our primary goal was to take services that are reserved for like the ultra high net worth segment and make them widely available to average investors. And the only way you can really do that is by integrating technology into your process um, so that it's a combination of kind of human hybrid with technology approach. And I think we did this in a few different ways. I mean, one, we just had a virtual advisor force. So rather than be this company that has to have a brick and mortar office in every single city around the country, we decided we're going to centralize this and use more virtual meetings. So the of technology was really beneficial there and provided a lot of efficiencies. And by doing that, it's lowered our costs, gives us the ability to lower the costs for our customers. So again, I think you're going to see more and more of that in the industry as we move forward. The other things, I mean, these are just simple things that, are so antiquated in the financial services industry, like just account opening. You need to fill out all these forms by hand in the presence of an advisor who then has to mail them here or there. Whereas we use technology to do that all digitally. And so we've just made a seamless kind of way to open an account. And even some of the portfolio management tasks like rebalancing and tax optimization, we help automate those. And so again, we're trying to remove some of the, I guess, kind of routine daily processes and automate those. And then I think another one of the biggest ones that we did was really we made someone's financial life dynamic in real time. And what I mean by that is, I don't know if you've ever used our financial dashboard, but it essentially, yeah, it's a platform where you can aggregate all your financial accounts. And by doing so, we can actually see everything in our client's financial life real time. And so in the traditional model, you would go to an advisor and spend all this time, Discussing everything that's happening in your life, maybe you don't even remember it correctly, or the different values of your accounts correctly, and then they input it into a system and they give you a financial plan that says, "Okay, this is what we need to do moving forward." And then the second you walk out the door, essentially that plan is partially out of date. It just gets more out of date over time, and then you just have to repeat this, like once a year, you'd meet with the advisors and go through this whole labor's process to do this. But with our financial dashboard, that's a great piece of technology where. Again, we see those changes in people's financial lives real time. So if somebody has an inheritance or is one year closer to retirement or whatever the case is, that provides an alert and we can immediately just prompt them, okay, it might make sense to become more conservative in your strategy where we remove that whole process of having to go through an entire information gathering and reevaluate someone's goals. And so that's been a really cutting edge piece of technology that's provided a lot of help for us and our clients.
1: One of the things I find interesting about this conversation about SRI and the evolution of financial markets is this underlying idea or force of individual investors' power. If we think about it, the rise of socially conscious investing is largely driven by individual investors demanding easier access to those types of companies. I mean, you even mentioned it. You guys kind of essentially built this or decided to offer this because you saw so many people wanting it. So, I think this is just another example. We saw GameStop, we saw Dogecoin. I mean, there's so many different things where individual investors are just driving change in the financial markets. Do you think we're getting to a point where individual investors hold too much power? Is it possible that we get to a point where that is the case? Interesting question.
3: I would have to say I think that may be less of a risk at least from a systemic like market standpoint that poses a form of systemic risk only because when you look at the individual investor space, yes, I think there's growing power amongst individual investors, you know, particularly with the evidence of like trading apps that have made complex investing really, really easy and gamified it and all of that. But at the same time, I think it's important to note that institutions still make up roughly 80% of equity capitalization out there. And so the vast majority is still in the hands of like large pension funds, foundations, retirement plans, those types of companies that are not the ones driving the type of speculation that you see in GameStop and Dogecoin and those types of things. And so I think there's more stability behind the scenes than you're thinking. I mean, I don't think investors like they did with GameStop could do that to a larger company you know, that didn't have the type of short selling against it. So I think there were some unique opportunities. And that was a very interesting thing that happened. But as a whole, I don't know if that presents a systemic risk to markets moving forward
1: you mentioned how there are apps and programs that are kind of gamifying the stock market and just providing increased access, I guess you could say. Is this a good thing for investors or have things become too easy? And that old saying of you can have too much of a good thing has become true?
3: I am all about greater transparency and greater access. I think in some of the things that we've seen recently, what we've lacked is that transparency. And so I think gamifying the markets and allowing investors to go leverage up on margin without really knowing exactly what they were doing, I mean, that presents some risk to the individual investor. And so I think investors do need to be careful but no, the ability to access capital markets and invest with ease, I mean, that's the whole goal here, right? Because it used to be such a complicated process and you have to go through all of these hoops to get there. And these middlemen are the ones that drove up costs in the industry, right? And so by eliminating all those middlemen, you can lower costs for the investor. And honestly, I think that's the evolution that we've seen over time of financial markets is just, I think, greater is provided investors with just more opportunities for success, I think, than they had in the past. So what I mean by that is that not only is easier to invest, but more information is widely disseminated to investors. There's been, I think, a greater proliferation, as I mentioned earlier, of registered investment advisors versus broker-dealers. So people are beginning to recognize the difference between the two and who's a fiduciary, who's not. By doing that, they can make smarter choices with what they invest in. I also think there's been greater transition to passive management over time, which I think is the better way to go about achieving wealth growth over time um, relative to active management and higher cost strategies. And again, this has all just manifested itself in just lower costs for investors. And I think if you go back and look at certain studies on investing over time, cost is one of the primary drags on returns. And the higher the cost, the worse investors do. To the extent that we can lower those, through greater access to capital markets, greater, cheaper access to capital markets, better information. That's a good thing in my mind.
1: Has this increased access made it more difficult for investors to invest for the long term? I know it's great. And I agree that it's great for people to have easier access to get invested. But now, because we can just open our phone and sell a position, it makes it harder for a lot of people to hold to the long term, which is Often and, and Warren Buffett totes this as one of the largest impacts of his success and just any individual investor's success. Has that made it more difficult, in your opinion, for investors to hold for the long term?
3: Probably, it does. Unfortunately, like when you're a do-it-yourselfer and you've gamified investment, if you're using that kind of platform to do the majority of your investing, it inherently promotes speculation, kind of short-termism, and I think that that can drag on people's portfolios and their returns over time because. I think all the research shows that, I mean, if the professionals can't even do it consistently over time, how can just, you know, the average individual investor? They just don't have access to the same kind of resources. And so, yeah, I, I mean, and it's why I encourage people to work with advisors where possible. You just have to ask the right questions with the advisor that you choose. Make sure that they are a fiduciary. Look for low cost registered investment advisors or advisors that aren't compensated based on what they're selling you. But working with a professional can be a great way to kind of get around those mental, I don't know, biases, so to speak, towards short-termism just because you have someone speaking in your ear and trying to provide that rational voice guiding you towards retirement.
1: If someone listening to the show today is brand new to SRI or ESG or just investing in general, where do they start if they want to get involved in SRI and ESG investing? How can they get involved in the right way?
3: So this goes back to my comment earlier about kind of the do-it-yourselfer versus professional management. So I think those are the two approaches that you can take. I mean, if you're a do-it-yourselfer and you truly are, you enjoy doing the reading, you enjoy doing the research and you have the time to do so. And so I think the best way to go about that is to look for low cost options. First of all, the benefits of a do it yourself approach are that it is very easy. You can find low cost options out there that don't cost a lot of money and they're just easy. You can buy one fund and you're automatically invested. But as we alluded to earlier, they come with pitfalls such as lack of diversification and then you have to supplement with other aspects of the portfolio. But I think Morningstar is a good resource to go to because you can go in and you filter based on sustainability portfolios or funds and you can see what's available. You can see the fees that are involved, look for lower cost options they even have sustainability ratings on specific funds. And so that might be a way to go about it. But as a whole, I think there's just a lot of information floating around here. And obviously, <laughs> I'm a little biased being working for an advisor, the registered investment advisor that focuses on this. But my preference is to work with a professional. And there's a few reasons for this. Yes, it might cost a little more than going out and buying a passively managed ESG ETF. But at the same time, it gives you opportunity to own individual stocks. By doing that, that makes things like tax optimization easier. You can better customize your portfolio if there are any companies that don't align with your values and you want them removed. There's just benefits of working with a professional that aren't available in the do-it-yourself world. That would be my choice. You can Google ESG managers. And if you're working with somebody already, I would say, ask them. That's the end point that I want to make is just ask. Like If you're working with a professional, they have to have some form of social responsible or ESG offering at this point. And if they don't, that's probably a red flag because really this is gaining enough momentum where everybody should have an offering in the space. Again, peel the wrapper back and make sure you're looking at everything that you're investing in, that it does align with your values, and that they're not compensated based on, based on what they're selling you.
1: Which books about investing do you enjoy that you'd recommend listeners of the show check out after this episode?
3: Well, I think one of the better books... Out there as far as just investing in general is from Jack Bogle. That's the the little book of common sense investing. And I forget what year he wrote that, but it really just champions the idea. And for those unaware, Jack Bogle, you know, started Vanguard. So very, very famous. Of course, they passed away a couple of years ago. But the book just really highlights the power of broad diversification and low cost, and that you can achieve the most optimal kind of wealth growth over time by focusing on those core tenets of a portfolio. So, I like that aspect of the book and that's really a core philosophy of my company as well, but I think there are also shortcomings that people don't really realize in the passive investing space as well that they're not considering and, and that's mainly that a lot of the passive funds out there are market cap weighted. What I mean by that is that the largest companies in the market make up the largest percentage of that fund. It's based on the size of the company and that's a little flawed in the sense that just because a company's large that doesn't necessarily mean it should have an outsized portion of your portfolio. And there have been numerous studies on this. And the studies have shown that once these companies become the largest in the market, they tend not to be moving forward, meaning they tend to underperform on a forward-looking basis. And you know, market cap weight is just an inherent way to buy high, buy what's already gone up and sell low, kind of avoid what's undervalued in the market. So it's a systematic way to kind of do the opposite of what an investor is supposed to do, which is buy low and sell high. So I do fully agree with passive investing, not trying to actively pick stocks and low cost, but I do think there are flaws. So I just point that out, but this is a great foundational book for anyone getting started in investing. And then when it comes to the ESG and social responsible aspect to it, this isn't a book, but actually a website. I would steer people towards Bloomberg. I don't know if you ever read Bloomberg, but they have what's called a Bloomberg green section. and It focuses purely on all sustainability within kind of the corporate world, within the investing world, how it impacts companies. And so that's a great resource to go and just kind of read what's the most kind of up to date trends and things that are happening in the space.
1: I will put a link to both of those resources in the show notes for anybody that's interested in checking those out. Brennan, thanks for joining me on the show today. Where can people listening connect with you?
3: Yeah, personalcapital.com. I mean, that's where you can go to find out. I mean, I'm on obviously LinkedIn, but our website does a good job of highlighting all the areas that we focus on, all the core tenets of our investment philosophy, which I've hopefully been able to voice over this podcast. But yeah, I mean, it has all the information on our social responsible offering, personalcapital.com.
1: I will put a link to personalcapital.com in the show notes below as well. And I'll also put a link to some other ESG and SRI related resources. We had Carrie Rich on the show a few months back. She's a hedge fund manager or VC, I should say, who leads an ESG focused VC, which was an interesting spin on this conversation to get as well. So I'll put a link to that in the resources below for anybody that's interested. Brendan, thanks so much for your time and I appreciate you uh, joining me.
3: Fantastic. Thank you, Robert. appreciate it.
1: All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Millennial Investing. I'll see you again next week.
2: Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by The Investor's Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.